The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. They propose a sort of framework for figuring it out, which is you look at the circumstances of the event and you say, is it more like a State of the Union address or is it more like a campaign event? And they look at the January 6th speech and say, this is outside the outer perimeter. And so this has enormous implications for a lot of personal litigation against Donald Trump during the period that he's president. A lot of people have withheld such litigation on the theory that Nixon Fitzgerald was a very broad grant of immunity, which it is. But here, the D.C. Circuit has articulated a limit of that immunity. And I I think one that is likely to carry some weight with the Supreme Court. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 5th, 2023. On Friday two courts weighed in on the question of presidential immunity. First, Judge Chutkin of the D.C. District Court ruled that Trump is not immune from special counsel Jack Smith's criminal prosecution for his conduct on January 6th. In the second, the D.C. Circuit Court ruled that Trump is not immune from a civil suit brought by members of Congress and Capitol Police officers, also relating to his conduct on January 6th. To talk through the decisions, I sat down with Lawfare senior editors Quinta Jurassic and Roger Parloff, along with Lawfare editor-in-chief Benjamin Wittes. We discussed the nuances of both opinions, how the analysis is consistent and how it is different, what each case implies about the other, and what comes next. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 5th, 2023. Two courts rule on presidential immunity. Okay, so we have two very interesting opinions that came out of the D.C. Circuit and the D.C. District Court this week, both relating to the question of whether Donald Trump has immunity. But both of these cases are actually presenting the question quite differently. So we will go through each one in turn. Quinta, I want to start with you on Judge Chutkin's ruling out of the district court in D.C. This is, of course, in Jack Smith's, uh, special counsel Jack Smith's criminal case against Donald Trump in connection with January 6th. So can you tell us what this case was about and what Judge Chutkin ruled? 
Trump has filed a variety of motions to dismiss in the case against him in Washington, D.C. over his involvement in January 6th. And this opinion from Judge Chutkin focused on Trump's motion to dismiss the charges against him on the grounds that he is immune from criminal prosecution um, as a former president, as well as on some separate constitutional grounds having to do with the First Amendment and the Due Process Clause. So I'll focus here on the immunity argument. In Trump's motion to dismiss on the grounds of immunity, what he's essentially trying to do is take existing doctrine that establishes that the president is immune from some civil suits for actions that are within the outer perimeter of his presidential responsibilities and extend that to the criminal space, arguing that he is absolutely immune from any kind of prosecution regarding January 6th because he was the president uh, while those actions took place. There are some additional uh, complications there, but that's the broad strokes of it. Uh, And I think it is fair to say that Chutkin was not particularly impressed uh, by this argument. Uh, She's definitely a fan of the well-placed zinger. And she writes at the beginning of this ruling, whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. So no total absolute immunity for former presidents in the criminal context. Her reasoning in very, very broad strokes essentially is that the reasoning that the Supreme Court used to apply uh, civil immunity to sitting presidents just simply doesn't apply in the criminal context. You're just not worried about chilling presidential actions in the same way. Um, And again, here we have a a zinger. She writes, every president will face difficult decisions. Whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. She also points out that whereas in the civil case, you might be worried that a president after he leaves office could be bombarded by civil lawsuits for all kinds of official actions he took. Um, That's just not present in the criminal context in the same way, especially because we're focusing here only on potential federal prosecutions. Um, And she writes also, you know, that there are all kinds of procedural safeguards in the criminal justice system, um, including, for example, the ability to move to dismiss a case for selective prosecution, which Trump is, is also attempting to do. Uh, She writes that there is a strong public interest um, in a criminal prosecution in that, and I quote here, a former president's exposure to federal criminal liability is essential to fulfilling our constitutional promise of equal justice under the law. Um, And so she really kind of comes out here with a ringing statement about the meaning of the rule of law, the meaning for what it means for everyone to be equal under the law, and takes that and says, Trump's argument about uh, absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for formal presidents is simply off the table. She does make clear that she is not delving into some of the more complicated questions about whether this applies to state prosecutions, whether uh, how we sort of navigate the dynamic of a sitting president versus a former president in this context, whether the line drawn in Fitzgerald about the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibilities applies here as well. She's really just saying there is not a sort of sweeping absolute immunity for former presidents from criminal prosecution. So was it your sense, based on the factors that you just listed, that Judge Chutkin was trying to write a narrow ruling that was specific to the admittedly quite unique facts that are presented to her here? 
No, actually. And I think that this is a way that her ruling really differs from the DC Circuit ruling and blessing, which we'll talk about in a minute, that she is really saying, look, you know, Trump has made this very, very broad, sweeping, high altitude argument about absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. And I'm going to address this at a similarly high altitude. She explicitly says, essentially, you know, I'm not going to dig into the question of whether the conduct for which Trump has been indicted is within the outer perimeter. Um, I'm not going to look at whether inquiring into uh, the president's motive for undertaking that actions, whether that kind of inquiry is constitutionally permissible. I'm just go- I'm just looking at this very, very high level question. So she's sort of moving in in very broad strokes here, as opposed to the DC Circuit, which is really trying to say, you know, we're going to take a look at how to understand, you know, the the specifics of whether this does or doesn't fall outside the line drawn in Fitzgerald. We're going to look at the specifics of the particular actions here and sort of provide a framework for the district court um, in analyzing that conduct. Okay, so we are going to come back to immunity, but I did want to spend a couple minutes on the other aspect of this ruling that you mentioned, Quinta, which was she also denied the motion that Trump made on constitutional grounds, which related to the impeachment clause. So Roger, can you tell us what Trump's original argument was in this vein and what Judge Chuckin ruled about it? Yeah, there are among the constitutional arguments he made was an argument that the impeachment judgment clause prevents him from being prosecuted. And this is important, uh, like the immunity clause, it's one of uh, the immunity ruling can almost certainly it can it can be the subject of an interlocutory appeal, which could stay the whole case. And that's obviously terribly important. A similarly, double jeopardy uh, is subject often to interlocutory appeal if you lose a motion to dismiss on double jeopardy grounds. Although if it's frivolous, then uh, it doesn't have to be stayed. Here, uh, one of the claims had to do with this, uh, the impeachment judgment clause, which says, uh, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy uh, so-and-so, the office. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, according to law. So what Trump had argued was that, well, that says the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment. It doesn't say the party acquitted. He was acquitted at impeachment, and he constructs an argument that you have to first go through impeachment and then be convicted before a president can be uh, indicted and tried in a conventional criminal setting. And she rejected that argument on multiple grounds. Uh, To begin with, there are two Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel rulings on this sort of argument. And and those aren't binding, of course, but they have weight and they're from different. Uh, one was uh, having to do, it, it, it was 1973, it was Vice President Agnew, and one was 2000. I assume it was Bill Clinton, it doesn't say. But 
One was during a Democratic administration, one was during a Republican administration. They both reached the same result that, no, that's not what this clause means. Uh, she analyzes it and, and says, you know, the first part of the clause is about restricting Congress's, uh, the punishments from the impeachment itself. It's only about removal from office and possible disqualification from holding office. That's different from things uh, from uh, apparently in England where the, the legislature itself could impose criminal type penalties. And so there, th that first clause is restricting it. And then the second clause is explaining that nevertheless, meaning it, it, even though the legislature can't pursue you, you can be pursued in a conventional criminal setting once you're no longer in office. So that, that's the gist of what's going on. And she also uses a, uh, she also points out that this is the uh, logical fallacy of, quote, denying the antecedent. Uh, and she gives the example uh, from the statement, if the animal is a cat, it can be a pet. It does not follow that if the animal is not a cat, it cannot be a pet. Yet defendant argues that because a president who is impeached and convicted may be subject to criminal prosecution, quote, a president who is not convicted may not be subject to criminal prosecution. And so she rejects that argument, I think, in, in pretty strong terms. So we'll have to see if that uh, amounts, if she regards that as a frivolous argument that uh, would not warrant staying the case or whether that's just a normal uh, it's, or it's a, a ruling on a case of first impression, which is technically the case. And it might be something that uh, an interlocutory appeal would stay the whole case. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the uh, cat being a pet example. I thought that was a nice example of the types of zingers that Quinta was talking about before. I will just note uh, that the 2000 OLC opinion that you mentioned is actually by Randy Moss, who's now a federal district judge, which of course came out uh, during the Clinton era. Ben, do you have any thoughts on the significance of that being included? I mean, it's one of the two times that the OLC has addressed the amenability of the president to criminal prosecution. And as Roger notes, both times the OLC concluded that a sitting president was not, but at no time did it suggest that a impeachment uh, and conviction was a prerequisite for indictment after service in office. And so, look, Judge Chutkin here is responding to a flamboyantly extravagant claim of immunity on the part of the former president. And it's one with very little, it has essentially no textual support, uh, very little historical support. And the plausibility of it rests entirely on the fact that the Supreme Court created the presidential immunity doctrine in Fitzgerald in the civil context. And it seems a little weird to say, well, the, the president is immune from civil liability, but you can prosecute him criminally for the same conduct. And that's really the entirety of the argument is that, well, you know, they, they immunized the president for against 
you know, against civil liability. So it follows that he, of course, must be immunized against criminal liability. That was never going to work at the district court level. There was never a chance, I don't think, that Judge Chutkin would rule any way other than the way she did. And the question that it that the opinion raises, of course, is are there five votes at the Supreme Court or you know, a majority of DC circuit judges who are willing to entertain this argument, you know, which would basically involve spinning this doctrine, I wouldn't say out of whole cloth, but out of some cloth. It's it's a stretch. And the major significance of these two cases coming out as they did the same day is that it actually gives you a bit of a window into how the DC circuit is going to think about this, which I assume we'll get to shortly. The, you know, the bottom line is it doesn't look good at the DC circuit level for the former president. And so if this immunity argument is going to prevail, it's going to have to prevail at the Supreme court. Yes, we will definitely come back to that. Um, I just want to spend a brief moment. Um, Roger, I know you've given some thought to the fact that this is, although a very unique situation with respect to Trump, the legal question is not totally unheard of. So can you talk to us a little bit about what we know from previous case law and just history in general about this question of criminal prosecution and impeachment? Yeah, the the there were these, as I said, the two OLC memos. And then historically, and, and this might be mentioned in, in the OLC memos, but, you know, there are people that were prosecuted without being first impeached and, and convicted in the impeachment setting, like Vice President um, Aaron Burr quite early on. And then at least four judges, uh, I can't think of them all now, Walter Nixon, Alcee Hastings, uh, and and two others. So, you know, there is historical precedent. And uh, and I should say generally uh, just that, um, uh, you know, this Chutkin's opinion did have lots of, like you say, zingers and bon mots, but it it was really well-reasoned and, and, and I think pretty bullet bulletproof. And, and one other thing she noted is that like in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which is the case you're going to be hearing a lot about with respect to the civil case, that was the case that set the you know rules about there. there is uh, some considerable immunity in the civil case context. All nine judges, there were three opinions, but all nine judges agreed that this did not you know, they were not writing about the criminal context. And four of them were very strong about it. Justice White wrote, he, he, he stressed that no party had argued, quote, that the president is immune from criminal prosecution in the courts, nor would such a claim be credible. So that's very strong. Uh, and, and the other voices on the court at that time were, you know, they, they were distinguishing it forcefully. So Anyway, uh, I just I just think it's a very solid ruling legally as well as in a uh, powerful literary sense. Okay, Roger, that was in um, Nixon v. Fitzgerald. Is that right? Yes. Okay, Ben, you've given a lot of thought to that opinion. What do you What do you think? 
So, you know, Roger is correct that all of the justices in Nixon v. Fitzgerald said this is not applying to, you know, criminal matters. But uh, in the dissent, which was written by Byron White, he kind of calls the majority out on the fact that that distinction is actually incoherent. And uh, he he writes at, at one point in the dissent, the court intimates that its decision is grounded in the Constitution. If that is the case, Congress cannot provide a remedy against presidential misconduct, and the criminal laws of the United States are wholly inapplicable to the president. I find this approach completely unacceptable. I do not agree that if the office of the president is to operate effectively, the holder of that office must be permitted without fear of liability and regardless of the function he is performing deliberately to inflict injury on others by conduct that he knows violates the law. So, I, I mean, I think the, the, the best argument for immunity, and it's not an argument that is going to work at the district court level, it's really an argument that only works at the appellate court level, is that if you're grounding this in separation of powers, which you know, is kind of the theory behind Nixon v. Fitzgerald, that it's a fundamental, the immunity is a fundamental incident of the office of the presidency itself, that it doesn't really make sense to apply it to the civil context and not to the criminal context. And that the, the effort to do so is kind of arbitrary. Yeah, and I think this is an interesting point that just bears emphasis, which we've intimated at, but just to make it explicit, you know, this is really the first time that the question of a president and immunity in the criminal context has come up. So when Trump wrote this motion, it relied very, very heavily on the premise that the civil context was analogous and really the only important consideration in making this determination about criminal immunity. And to be clear, nobody disagrees with Roger that in fact, it is different, right? Everybody has proceeded from the Nixon case, not Nixon v. Fitzgerald, but the Nixon criminal case, right? He wouldn't have needed a pardon if he had been immune. And Ford granted him the pardon. He accepted the pardon, right? Uh, And so he never said, I don't need this because I'm immune. Bill Clinton reached a basically a non-pros kind of plea agreement with uh, the office that had been run by Ken Starr. No reason to do that if you're immune. So nobody has actually acted like they believe that there is criminal immunity. And that said, no president has been indicted because of the pardon of Nixon and the plea agreement involving Clinton. No president has been indicted. And so you've never had occasion to test it, particularly in the years since Nixon v. Fitzgerald. But this argument is one, I don't think it has, I'm quite confident it doesn't have five votes on the Supreme Court, but it probably has one or two. Yeah, and I think in this sense, you know, the fact that it hasn't been presented in this way to a court makes it all the more interesting that Judge Chutkin chose to write a uh, higher altitude opinion here. So on this question of the civil context for immunity, let us move now to the D.C. Circuit's opinion issued 
on the very same Friday afternoon in the case uh, Blassing Game, which uh, used to be called Thompson v. Trump, uh, which I think people are more familiar with under that heading. That was brought by Congressman Benny Thompson and a host of others, including other members of Congress, as well as some Capitol Police, I believe, and some other individuals trying to sue Trump civilly for incitement for having caused their uh, injuries on January 6th. That opinion came out, uh, three-judge panel. Ben, can you tell us about the case and what the circuit ruled? Yeah. So first of all, the Chutkin opinion was expected, and it's an important opinion in the trial of Donald Trump, but it is exactly, I think, what everybody expected her to do, and thus is really no surprise. The DC Circuit opinion is an extremely big deal, and it's a uh, for a few reasons. The first, it took the DC Circuit a year to write this opinion. It's an appellate court opinion. Uh, which means it is precedential and you know binds the DC circuit, other panels of the DC circuit, and it binds the lower courts, including importantly Judge Chutkin. And then the, the third reason it's a big deal is that it is cross quite cross ideological. It's written by the chief judge of the court, Sri Srinivasan, who's uh, an appointee of Barack Obama. On it, however, all of it is uh, Judge Katsas, Gregory Katsas, who uh, is a, uh, you know, a sort of uh, very conservative uh, judge um, who previously, before being on the D.C. Circuit, served in the Trump White House Counsel's Office, as well as in the Justice Department. He's a sort of luminary of the, of the conservative bar and then the third member of the opinion who joins all of the substantive argument, but uh, kind of picks nits on some of the procedural aspects is uh, Judge Judith Rogers, who is uh, uh, an appointee of Bill Clinton. So this represents, you know, a, a very wide swath of the political and ideological spectrum of the D.C. Circuit, and particularly because both because this panel is composed of very well-respected judges from both the conservative and the liberal side, it's going to carry a lot of weight at the Supreme Court, I suspect. All right, so what did uh, what is the opinion about? The case involves uh, civil suits against Trump for having allegedly inspired or provoked the riot on January 6th. Then it's brought by uh, it's actually several cases brought by Capitol Police officers and by members of Congress. Um, and, you know, the president had argued, the former president had argued that he was immune from this lawsuit under Nixon v. Fitzgerald, that he was just giving a speech. Giving a speech is one of the functions of the presidency, and therefore he is immune from suit as a result. Uh, the district court had rejected this on a theory that's actually different from what the D.C. Circuit adopted, and the Justice Department had urged really focusing on the non-protected uh, nature of incitement as a, uh, as a means of resolving it. And the D.C. Circuit sweeps all this aside 
and proposes a different test of how to evaluate whether a presidential speech is uh, within the outer perimeter of the president's authority. And what they say is, look, look at the speech, not the contents of the speech. What he says doesn't matter. But look at the, the circumstances of the speech and ask, is this an official function? Like, is it the, the, the State of the Union address or is it a bill signing or is it an official presidential visit to, you know, Qatar? If it is, he is absolutely immune from what he says, even if what he says is a crime. That's the meaning of presidential immunity. Uh, conversely, if it is not an official function, and in this case, the speech was organized allegedly by private actors, he's there as a seeker of the office of president, not as the holder of the office of president. So a campaign event that's paid for by the campaign that he's not using government personnel for, these are outside the outer perimeter of the president's uh, office, and he's just like any other citizen for that. Now, they acknowledge that these two things can be, in the case of the person of the president, can be sometimes a little tricky to figure out which one we're dealing with. And so they propose a sort of framework for figuring it out, which is you look at the circumstances of the event and you say, is it more like a State of the Union address or is it more like a campaign event? And they look at the January 6th speech and say, this is outside the outer perimeter. And so this has enormous implications for a lot of personal litigation against Donald Trump during the period that he's president. A lot of people have withheld such litigation on the theory that Nixon Fitzgerald was a very broad grant of immunity, which it is. But here, the D.C. Circuit has articulated a limit of that immunity. And I, I think one that is likely to carry some weight with the Supreme Court. So I think this is a, a, just an enormously consequential opinion. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I want to ask, just on the legal question, you know, one of the things that a lot of commentators were saying about the difficulty of the question presented was this notion that because the claim w related to incitement, that asking whether a president could be immune from incitement, in, in this case, would require the court, if you if you made the calculation about what the president intended, which is, of course, an important consideration for incitement, 
that it would require sort of burrowing your way into a president's head. So to what extent, um, Roger, I'm interested for your thoughts on this. To what extent do you think the court was attracted to this idea of looking at circumstance in the way that Ben describes rather than having to consider intent? Yeah, that was uh, that was true. And even, I think, more broadly, they they wanted to, you know, when you make an immunity d- decision, you, you want to make it as early as possible because the idea is that he's being harassed in some inappropriate way or his functions are being diminished. And here... The, the question of did he incite violence was a very contested issue. And and so, you know, ordinarily the rule is, well, we take the complaints, allegations at uh, as true for the purpose of a motion to dismiss. But it's going to be very easy for plaintiffs to allege that people broke the law in violent in 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 various ways and or or committed wrongdoing and they did not want to have a situation where they granted immunity and then on on a, a basis that turns out to be false of course in the end uh they they we are going to revisit this question at the summary judgment phase so they didn't avoid that altogether but they tried to find something extremely objective that wouldn't, like you say, that wouldn't involve looking into intent and motive and and uh, that can be determined on its face. I think the, the language is, as an initial matter, the, the government had suggested that, that you could deny immunity to him because the allegation was that he was going to incite imminent private violence. And they were saying, as an initial matter, the government's suggested approach could lead to our denying immunity to President Trump based on an assumption that turns out to be false. Indeed, an assumption that President Trump has already contested. So this was a way of of getting around that problem. Quinta, what are your thoughts on this distinction between circumstances and intent? Yeah, so, so two points here. One is, I think it's worth noting how this focus on uh, what the court describes as an objective context-specific assessment rather than an inquiry into motive, I think kind of allows the court to frame the the framework that it's set out as very generous to presidents and former presidents. So Srinivasan writes that, you know, when this inquiry, and I quote, yields no sufficiently clear answer in either direction, the president, in our view, should be afforded immunity. And then he goes on to say, conversely, when a president's actions viewed objectively and in context may reasonably be understood only, that's my emphasis, as re-election campaign activity, a court not only may but must deny immunity. And I note that Judge Katsas in his concurrence also really drills down on this language of an objective inquiry, context, et cetera, et cetera. And so I certainly read that as saying you know, look, everybody, you know, we're not trying to ask, you know, what what lies within the former president's heart. Not only are we looking at these sort of outer trappings, um, but we're doing so in, in such a way that really allows the president kind of a or former president a, a fair amount of leeway in terms of whether or not we decide to grant immunity. The other point that I found interesting is that 
you know, to, to connect this back to the U.S. v. Trump prosecution, one of the arguments that Trump is having with the special counsel in the briefing on that is uh, whether or not this inquiry into motive is permissible. And Trump says that it is not in the context of a criminal prosecution when you're trying to determine immunity. And the special counsel says, well, Yes, it's it is uh, ruled out under Fitzgerald, but this is simply a different situation because this is a criminal context, and that test doesn't that aspect it doesn't apply here. And so Chetkin kind of doesn't touch on that specific dispute because, as we've discussed, she's really ruling at a very high altitude. But I think it's worth noting, insofar as we're trying to kind of map out the overlap and cross cutting between these different opinions. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I do want to come to soon um, comparing these opinions and thinking about what they say about each other. Roger, I know you had some additional thoughts on this opinion and this question of the distinction between political capacity versus presidential capacity. Yeah, I think there's another way in which Srinivasan is trying to make the ruling as narrow as possible because he keeps mentioning over and over the fact that Trump, in a sense, himself admitted that he was acting in a personal capacity, not an official capacity, with respect to uh, much of his attempts to reverse the election results. Because he entered a motion to intervene in the Texas versus Pennsylvania case in December 2020. You remember that's the the weird original jurisdiction case that in which uh, Texas was trying to persuade the Supreme Court to throw out the results in four swing states. And uh, when he did that, when he entered, uh, tried to intervene, he said uh, he was doing so in his, quote, personal capacity as candidate for re-election to the office of the president, personal capacity. He also wrote that uh, he, he grounded his right to intervene in, quote, his uh, unique and substantial personal interests as a candidate for re-election to the office of president. Obviously, it's going to be very rare that a plaintiff is going to be is going to be in a position where suing the president, where the president has already agreed, uh, said somewhere that he was acting in his uh personal capacity and not official capacity when he committed the acts that are uh, the subject of the suit. Yeah, I have to say, it does seem to me that the attempt to draw a very clean line between political capacity and official capacity or personal, as you say, and and political is a bit tricky um, when it when it focuses on speech. You know, are you are you talking about if the speech given is in the context of a previously scheduled political event that was sold as such? You know, what do you do about speeches that are on the road for other things um, but seem to the world to be political in nature? I, I think it is not so clean in practice. You know, and the the Texas v. Pennsylvania, as you say, case raised some interesting additional data points here for thinking about this issue. Um, Quinta, you gave a lot of thought to that case. What what are your thoughts on this? 
I have been interested in the this question of, you know, why was it that Trump uh, chose to intervene in this, really underlining this personal capacity in this suit? Um, I will confess I've had some difficulty tracking that down. So if any Lawfare listeners uh, recall, please give us a shout. But I will say that looking at the January 6th report, uh, the, the committee's report, there's a, an interesting data point here about a uh, December 29 uh 2020 meeting that Trump had with members of the Justice Department and and Mark Meadows where Trump essentially wanted to file an additional complaint challenging the results of the 2020 election essentially according to the committee modeled after Texas versus Pennsylvania Trump wanted the Justice Department to do this, and the Justice Department officials essentially refused. So that doesn't speak directly to the fact that Trump was intervening in a personal capacity in Texas v. Pennsylvania. But I do think it's kind of an interesting data point that when we're looking at, you know, why was it that Trump chose to to frame this as really a personal, the personal action of a candidate, that he then later that same month tried to essentially get the government to weigh in in an official capacity, sort of wearing his president hat and wasn't able to. I think that might perhaps uh, strengthen even more the line that the D.C. Circuit is drawing here. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. And, you know, as we're talking, it's very clear that there are a lot of complicated but quite nuanced issues here. And it strikes me that it's important that Although all three judges on the panel joined the opinion, two of the three chose to also write concurrences. And, you know, typically that's done when everyone can agree on the outcome and the main framework of the analysis, but the concurring judge has some additional stuff to say. So, Ben, what did you make of the two concurrences and how they compared to the main opinion? So the Katz's concurrence, Judge Katz's joins the majority opinion, Judge, Chief Judge Srinivasan's opinion in its entirety. Uh, so his opinion is very much for the purpose of a kind of adding a little bit of explanatory material. No part of it takes issue with anything in the majority opinion. It just emphasizes a few points that for one reason or another are important to Judge Katsas. In particular, he seems to have a concern to uh, emphasize that this is not holding that Trump doesn't get immunity. It is holding merely that if the facts are as pled, proved to be as pled in the complaint, which they have to take as true at this point, then Trump is not entitled to immunity. Uh, Judge Rogers' uh, uh, concurrence is a little bit more complicated. She joins the substantive components of the opinion, but she has uh, a bunch of kind of prickly words for the framework that the the analytical framework that the other two propose to the lower court for how to think about how to handle these immunity questions and she seems to think that none of that is properly before the court and that the she kind of accuses them of sort of micromanaging the way the district court is going to handle this uh which actually seemed to me to be a little bit uh, ungenerous, frankly, but um, 
the body of her opinion, the she definitely joins substantively the body of the majority's opinion. So I would say that there is a minor difference among the DC circuit judges in how much guidance they should give to the lower court about how to handle this going forward, but there's no substantive difference among them that I can discern about how to analyze uh, these facts as an immunity question. And that, that actually is striking that the, you know, you get a panel of the DC circuit and it's substantively unanimous on this. Yeah, absolutely. And and it occurs to me, I think Roger mentioned this earlier, but Judge Katsis in particular is is leaving some room for if in fact the government is not able to prove its case to his satisfaction, I mean not his personally, to one's satisfaction that there is plenty of room to reconsider this issue in the context of a summary judgment motion. Let us turn now to looking at these cases together, which obviously they are not part and parcel of the same proceeding, but you know, from a practical perspective, they relate to the same types of facts, and they are happening at the same time. So they are not in direct conversation with each other, but they do, in fact, really influence each other and are likely to have an impact going forward, particularly because I think we all can expect that Trump will bring an appeal of Judge Shutkin's ruling on the motion to dismiss. So Quinta, you had emphasized to me in a previous conversation that it was interesting to you that both cases are presented at this, you know, with a lot of emphasis on how this is a preliminary stage. What else do you think is important about that? So the way that I read that was that, you know, these cases both have really important implications, obviously, uh, for what's going to happen in both these pieces of litigation, but I mean, honestly, really, I'm focused on the criminal prosecution of Trump, and and I know Ben has thought about the interaction here. So Ben, I'll I'll be interested to to know what you think. But that there's a little bit of kind of emphasizing, you know, to the public, don't don't get out over your skis here, <laughs> so so to speak. Srinivasan really emphasizes repeatedly, and I think this is part of what uh, seems to make Judge Rogers perhaps a little irate. You know, we're we're ruling here on Trump's motion to dismiss. That means that we have to take all of the allegations as pleaded. So perhaps Trump could, you know, for example, on a motion to summary judgment, demonstrate that he was in fact acting in an official capacity and so on and so forth. Judge Chutkin also, as I mentioned, um, is is really explaining here, you know, I'm only looking at the question of whether Trump possesses absolute federal criminal immunity for any acts committed well in office. So they're they're kind of playing down what they're doing here, even as I think it's it's very significant. And Srinivas, and also it's worth uh, noting, says explicitly at the beginning of the ruling, we're really only looking here. Um, at civil litigation, we are not looking here at the question of a criminal prosecution. That said, there are some obvious implications about what this might say in terms of how the D.C. Circuit could potentially consider Judge Chutkin's ruling. Um, and, and on this, I, I'll turn it over to Ben. Yeah, Ben, what are your thoughts on this? Is is this an instance of Justice White's dissent being particularly apt? So, look, I, I think... There is a sense in which the two issues are 
not that closely related, right? Judge Chutkin is addressing whether there is immunity at all in the criminal context, and she says no. The D.C. Circuit is saying, is addressing a different question, which is where there is immunity, and they're not addressing the question of is there immunity in the criminal context, how do you separate the the question of what what are you immune from from what aren't you immune from, i.e. the personal from the presidential? There's another sense, however, in, in which the two issues are very closely related, and I think the D.C. Circuit has, in, in important respects, showed its hand. So, first of all, it would be really strange for the D.C. Circuit to hold that, like, a speech on the mall that provokes a riot, you are not immune from, as a civil matter, from liability, but, you know, the larger pattern of conduct that it's part of, you're completely immune from as a criminal matter. That would be a very weird sequence of D.C. Circuit rulings. More broadly, I think it is fair to say that this opinion shows that the D.C. Circuit's tolerance for the idea of broad immunity in the presidential arena is it's a bit narrower than people expected. I'm very surprised that there wasn't a dissent from this. And I think if you if you say that the DC circuit as a body is a less friendly forum to sweeping presidential immunity claims than we may have expected it to be or then it doesn't seem likely that that same DC circuit is going to turn around and say, oh, but we're going to extend Fitzgerald, having just said Fitzgerald's a little bit narrower than y'all probably thought, we're going to now sweepingly extend it to be an absolute immunity from criminal stuff, which, you know, as Roger pointed out, nine justices of the Supreme Court had said, we're not going there, or, 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 or this Fitzgerald doesn't go there. So I, I think it is, as a matter of tea leave reading, it's very hard for me to imagine that the same DC circuit that issued this opinion is going to reverse Chutkin on the extension of Fitzgerald to the to the criminal space. Perhaps the more urgent question because ultimately that question is going to be decided by the Supreme Court not by the DC circuit. Perhaps the more urgent question involves whether the March 5th trial deadline is going to actually happen, the trial date. So Judge Chutkin has set a trial date for March. Her ruling, for reasons we can go into if you want, her ruling rejecting presidential immunity is subject to interlocutory appeal. And the question of whether the proceedings get stayed while that interlocutory appeal happens has a lot to do with whether the trial deadline will really, will, the trial date will really happen in March. And I think this does suggest to me, at least again, reading tea leaves, that the DC Circuit is unlikely to stay a trial based on a theory of immunity that, it, that involves greatly widening the theory, the, the, the current presidential immunity, having just said 
by the way, the the you know immunity, Fitzgerald immunity, isn't quite as broad as you think. And then finally, I will just point out, and I have not studied the indictment with this question in mind, so take this as very tentative. But the opinion does mean that if Chutkin is wrong, and eventually there is Fitzgerald immunity, under this DC Circuit framework, you would have to go through this indictment and do a context-specific analysis of each act in the indictment and say, hey, is this a private act or a public act? And some of those acts, like you know, threatening to f- fire the uh, acting attorney general, clearly public acts. But a lot of the acts, like calling Brad Raffensperger, you know, not clear to me that those are acts in his capacity as president versus his acts in his capacity as an office seeker. And so I think, you know, this opinion could mean that even if somehow Tanya Chutkin got reversed uh, on the immunity question, a lot of the indictment would survive. Okay, I want to come to both Roger and Quinta for your thoughts on this question, because it does seem to me that this is as as Ben says, there is some tea leaf reading here, but it's an interesting question. So, Roger, to come to you first, what are your thoughts on what these cases have to do with each other, the, the interaction for thinking about what these issues mean and what they're likely to mean going forward? Well, I agree with Ben and for the reasons he stated that there's just a very strong a fortiori type argument. I mean, if if he's not even entitled to what we used to call nearly absolute immunity from civil suit on on these facts it's almost inconceivable that he's you know entitled to some immunity from criminal prosecution you know nixon versus fitzgerald was a 5-4 ruling about whether the president should even get immunity in the civil context there's never been well, I, I won't. I'm, I won't say never, but but you know we do have some some other officials, judges, and prosecutors that get so so called absolute immunity from civil suit. They are not protected from criminal prosecution. So the, the, there's just no. It's it's a much. Everyone sort of assumes it's a much steeper hurdle. And you and I, I read the language from Justice White. And it's true, you know, about uh, that he just thought it wasn't convincing, it wasn't plausible practically that, that uh, and he, they weren't even ruling on that question. So um, that's the main takeaway I got. There was a, there's a side point uh, going back to the Texas versus Pennsylvania thing, you know, where he admits that he has a unique and substantial personal interest as a candidate for re-election. Uh, it happens that that could conceivably become an important admission if, because one of the charges against Trump is this corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. And one of the argued meanings of, of corruptly is uh, doing something to get a personal benefit, doing a, uh, something illegal for a personal benefit. And here he, he is saying that he had a huge, unique and substantial personal interest uh, in becoming a candidate. But that's, that's sort of a sidelight and a contingent uh, issue. 
But I, the, the overwhelming one is the one that, that Ben described. It seems to me it's sort of an interesting dynamic. There's a bit of a catch-22 in comparing the crime of corrupt obstruction of a criminal proceeding and this test, perhaps, of personal versus political. You know, what uh, can a can a political candidate act corruptly, or is that effectively a personal situation? How much of it is circumstance? How do you decide that? It, it seems like a very difficult inquiry. Okay, Quinta, and let's wrap it up with you. What are your thoughts on the interaction of these two cases? I think what we've really seen over the course of the Trump presidency, and this is an an argument that I've made in Lawfare, is Trump sort of attempting to collapse the distinction between himself as a person who occupies or occupied the office of the presidency and the presidency as an institution um, and trying to kind of merge those together. And we see this in his argument about absolute criminal immunity, that everything he does is official and that he should retain that immunity even after leaving office. I think what we see here in these two rulings in different ways are courts saying, you know, no, and they take different approaches to that. They go through that inquiry at different levels of altitude. But I find it kind of interesting as a symbolic rebuttal, if you will, to this argument that Trump has been making and that I think is not only is now, but has always been at the core of his vision for what the presidency means and his place in it. Okay, I think we are going to leave it there. Quinta, Roger, Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. If you're interested in our analysis of the many trials of Donald Trump, join us for our weekly live event on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.